0: welcome to the loop ventures podcast this is gene munster today i'm joined with dr kevin Lumen. he's a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at penn state university and a renowned astronomer for having discovered both the third closest solar system now called Lumen 16, and the coldest brown dwarf star ever found, which too will soon bear his name. Today, we're going to talk about how astronomy impacts our everyday lives, the realistic probability of humanity visiting the moon and Mars in the next decade, and finally, an insider's view of Elon Musk and SpaceX. And with that, we bring you Dr. Kevin Lumen. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. So Kevin I'm old I'm 50 it's been a long time since I've been in school and I would love just a refresher course for you to just define astronomy for us. Oh
1: astronomy is the the study of the universe. So stars, planets, galaxies, the whole universe.
0: It sounds like a massive line of study, and a massive body of work, literally and figuratively too.
1: Yeah, what encompasses a, a huge range of phenomena from planets, asteroids, comets, up to the universe as a whole.
0: So embarrassed to say I've never met an astronomer. So I would just love to find out a little bit more about who you are. So it would be fascinating for you to think back when you were, let's say, in elementary school. I'm just curious, how would you describe maybe a sixth, seventh, eighth grader, who you were and what your interests were back in that age group?
1: So as far back as I can remember, when I mean, I was even in grade school, I was already interested in astronomy. And one big influence for me was my brother, who's six years older. When he was young, he was also interested in the topic. And so I picked it up from him. When we were both kids, we both were interested in becoming astronauts. But then we eventually realized that wasn't really very realistic. And so uh, we focused on astronomy instead.
0: And how would you kind of express that? Or how would you pursue that curiosity around astronomy did you have many telescopes one telescope Do you remember what age you were when you started to stargaze with a little more curiosity
1: yeah like six eight ten i was already really interested in the topic my brother had a telescope and we used that from time to time by the time i would get to six or like 10 or 11 o'clock in the evening i would already be too tired and would just want to go to bed but so i wasn't really very good at staying up all night to watch the stars
0: So it really wasn't about maybe watching stars when you were younger. It was probably more just studying them and through different ways of studying them versus looking up in the sky.
1: Right. I mean, for me, one big influence was the documentary Cosmos by Carl Sagan. So that was released in the early 80s. And so both my brother and I really enjoyed that.
0: Fascinating. And I'm curious, what's your brother doing?
1: Well, he also obtained a PhD in astronomy, but he eventually left the field to become an analyst that does defense-related
0: work. Okay. We call that the dark side, I guess, but right, right. it's fascinating that you are, when you said you had that shared interest, you've carried it for both of your lives. I appreciate the dedication to something that is such a mystery to us and the average person as well. And a question, why should the average person even care about space or astronomy?
1: Well, astronomy tries to address some of the most fundamental questions of humanity, like the origin of life, the origin of Earth, the fate of life on Earth. Are we alone in the universe? Sorts of questions that almost anybody find appealing.
0: Yeah, so it might not impact your day-to-day, but anyone's natural curiosity would want to know some of those answers. If you think more broadly about astronomers, what are the main topics that they're studying right now that potentially could benefit humanity in non-space-related areas? For example, maybe autonomous vehicles in the future, or other kind of segments that aren't trying to solve the history of the universe, but more maybe practical examples of how astronomy impacts our lives?
1: Much of astronomy involves telescopes that are trying to see very faint things in the universe. That sort of technology is directly applicable to remote sensing. And there are all kinds of different circumstances on Earth where remote sensing is used, like with satellites, for instance.
0: What would be an example of remote sensing?
1: Weather satellites, for instance, or spy satellites.
0: What are they remotely sensing? Is it a satellite sensing what's going on on the surface of the Earth, or is it...
1: That's right. Yeah, they're trying to observe very small areas of Earth, that's right. Or, you know, read a license plate, for instance, on
0: Earth. I've seen that in the movies. Is that actually feasible? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh Uh-huh. Amazing. In fact,
1: much of the technology developed by the military for spy satellites, those kinds of telescopes and detectors are then used by astronomers, except they just point them in the opposite direction of the heavens.
0: Got it. What's the field of people who do a lot of work on the satellites? Do you traffic in that, or is that just kind of commercial applications that you don't think as much about?
1: Well, space telescopes are carried on satellites, and so astronomers definitely care about satellites in that way, but usually they're focused on the telescope itself that is carried aboard the satellite.
0: Oh, nice. And what are the big telescopes I periodically hear, maybe every decade or so, a big telescope that gets launched into space? What's the one that's most powerful, that's useful today?
1: Well, the Hubble Space Telescope was launched in 1990, so it's a rather old telescope, but it's still in regular use and still a very powerful telescope.
0: By the way, is that just kind of drifting off into space, or does the Hubble have an orbit around Earth?
1: Yeah, it's in low Earth orbit. It's only a few hundred kilometers above the surface. And in fact, it was deployed by the space shuttle, only went into low earth orbit.
0: Got it. I'm curious, how high is low earth orbit?
1: It's like maybe two or three hundred kilometers. So it's sort of in the same ballpark as the International Space Station.
0: Not that high. Okay. So those would be the ones at night, for example, you could see satellites periodically at night. That would be a low orbit satellite.
1: And then there's another space telescope that was launched actually by a SpaceX rocket a year ago called TESS. It stands for the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Telescope. That's a telescope that's focusing on searching for planets around other stars.
0: So Kevin, we were talking about low-orbit satellites, and I'm curious, is that what we're seeing is sometimes on a clear night, you can see those objects that are quickly moving around in the sky?
1: Yes, that's correct. So satellites in low-Earth orbit can often be seen with the naked eye as basically small dots of light that quickly move across the sky over a period of maybe 10 minutes.
0: And we talked about the telescopes that are out there. Is there any plans to have... A newer 1990, did you say, that Hubble was launched? It seems like we're kind of due for a new one.
1: That's right, yeah. So the next major observatory that's going to be launched into space is the James Webb Space Telescope. It's been delayed several times over the last 10 or 15 years, but it's currently scheduled for launch in 2021.
0: And that's a, presumably a big deal.
1: Yeah, so that's going to be the next major space observatory, the most important one coming on the horizon. Unlike Hubble, it won't be in orbit around Earth. It'll be at what's called the second Lagrangian point, which is a point of stable gravity between the Earth, Sun, and Moon that's directly away from the Earth from the Sun. So it's about a a million kilometers away from Earth.
0: Is there any way to try to illustrate how much more powerful or the quality of the images that we're going to get from this new telescope?
1: We often measure the power of a telescope based on the size of its mirror Because if the mirror is larger, it can collect more light and see fainter things in the universe. So, for instance, Hubble has a mirror that's about 2.4 meters across, whereas this new telescope, James Webb, will have a mirror that's about six and a half meters across. So it's almost three times the diameter, and therefore almost nine times the collecting area.
0: Amazing. Is that kind of one way to think of this? It would be nine times as strong? Basically, it will see
1: stars that are nine times fainter.
0: And you've spent a lot of time looking at stars. In fact, you've had some discoveries in the sky. And were you using the Hubble telescope to make those discoveries?
1: Actually, I was using a different space telescope. This one was called the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. The acronym for it is WISE. And this was a a telescope that mapped the entire sky at infrared wavelengths. And using that infrared map of the sky, I was able to identify some very close neighbors of the sun that no one had seen before.
0: That's a, just amazing. I'm curious, when you made that identification, what's that moment like?
1: It was very exciting. At first, I thought I must have stumbled across something that was already known. I thought that surely something this close must have been found already. But sure enough, it was previously undiscovered.
0: Is there a like a third party that you go through to make sure that, in fact, it has not been named or discovered?
1: There's a, a database online of all stars and galaxies and planets that have been published before. And so I just went to that database and plugged in the coordinates in the sky of this object and checked whether anything near there was known previously.
0: And there you go. You had a discovery, one that I'm sure I will never make in my life. And the best part about this is that discovery and that naming will live on forever, which is really incredible to say that you actually did that.
1: Yeah, it was very exciting.
0: And is there any monetary value to these kind of discoveries?
1: Not really. It helps with promotion, but otherwise, nothing direct.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You cannot talk about space, at least here in the U.S., without talking about NASA. don't hear a lot from them these days. I'm curious, what are they up to?
1: Well, there's still a lot going on with Mars. So Mars is one of the most important targets for NASA in the solar system. And so Mars Curiosity, the latest rover to arrive on Mars a few years ago, it's still in operation. And NASA has a steady flotilla of missions planned for the next decade. Missions to Mars. Right. Missions to Mars. Yeah.
0: And so they'll be sending a, a vehicle up there, not a human though.
1: That's right. So all the spacecraft over the next decade will be unmanned probes. That's right.
0: Okay. Is NASA a much smaller organization today than it was and? In- 1969, when man first landed on the moon?
1: In terms of the share of the total federal budget, yeah, the share of the budget is much lower today than it was in the 1960s. I'm not sure how it compares in terms of dollar amounts.
0: Would you consider it still a formal agency that is advancing the cause of astronomers, or are you looking more towards the private sector to do that?
1: No, NASA is still doing plenty of work to advance space exploration in the solar system and also... To advance the study of astronomy. So there's still a lot going on.
0: Got it. I don't know if you can share this on the podcast, but have you or are you currently interviewing at NASA? I know. But that'd be a cool job for somebody like you or is academia more.
1: It would. I mean, I have colleagues who work, for instance, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So people go back and forth between academia and places like NASA.
0: I'm curious if you go out for a beer with somebody from JPL, for example, and yourself, what do you talk about?
1: We talk about often the upcoming missions, especially the, the astronomy missions, the new telescopes that are being planned for the future.
0: Incredible. Talk about Mars too?
1: Sure, the spacecraft that are visiting Mars, also the new space telescopes that will be launched, especially the telescopes that search for planets or under the stars.
0: And I'm curious, maybe just in terms of human exploration space and We'll start with a body that is uh, surprisingly close that most people, I ask this question a lot to random people in my life. uh, How close is the moon? They think it's millions of miles away, but of course, it's just a chip shot called 250,000 miles away. And I'm curious, are there any plans to go back to the moon, maybe for tourism's sake, or how do you think about humans returning to the moon?
1: Well, there's a lot of debate about whether NASA should return to the moon whether it should try to develop a base there and use the moon as a launching point for going on to Mars. And it's not really completely subtle as far as what the long-term outlook is for the moon. I mean, for some people feel like it's not worthwhile to go to the moon because once you go to the moon, you still have to escape the gravity well of the moon if you want to go to Mars. And so some people feel that it would be better simply to leave straight from a low Earth orbit and go directly to Mars.
0: Got it. And the tourism aspect of the moon, are people with credibility talking about making that a reality or is that just kind of a dream at this point?
1: Yeah, I think it's still a dream at this point.
0: And just from a technology standpoint, it would just seem that be pretty easy to get back to the moon. Is that accurate or would it, would it take a, there'd have, obviously have to be some tooling for that mission, but it would seem like we could do that with one hand tied behind our back. Is that accurate?
1: Yes, it would be relatively straightforward for us to return to the Moon, to send humans to the Moon again. One nice thing is that any trip to the Moon can be relatively short. It could be just days or weeks. As you may know already, one of the big difficulties in sending humans to Mars is that the journey would be a few years instead of a few weeks. And so that poses far greater hazards for the astronauts that are traveling.
0: Maybe we could try to put a finer point on the difficulties here that we're talking about, the scale of difficulty Scale of one to a hundred, how hard is it? A hundred being extremely difficult, how difficult is it to return to the moon from a technology standpoint?
1: A 10 or 15. It should be quite easy. We certainly have the technology to do that.
0: Okay. And in Mars?
1: Mars is more like an 80 or 90.
0: It would be exponentially more difficult.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Besides just the distance, can you kind of conceptualize what the main approach is or the main methods that people are talking about getting to Mars? I've done a little bit of reading on it, find it fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, a human journey to Mars would involve a one-way trip of probably eight months and then a few weeks or a few months staying on Mars and then another eight months back. And so this is a journey of about two years. And one of the main obstacles to sending humans to Mars is what's known as cosmic rays. Cosmic rays are protons and neutrons, basically atoms, that travel through space at very high speeds, often at a large fraction of the speed of light. And these particles can pose a danger to any living tissue that can damage DNA and lead to the development of cancer and other diseases. And so the question is, how do you protect astronauts against these cosmic rays for upwards of two years? And that's one of the huge obstacles that really hasn't been solved.
0: I had no idea. Would you need that protection on the surface of Mars as well, or would it just be en route? Yeah, you would
1: need the protection on Mars as well. On Earth, we have the atmosphere of Earth and the magnetic field of Earth attacked as a shield. When astronauts go to the moon, they're only exposed to that radiation for maybe a week, so it's not a big deal. But on Mars, the atmosphere is very thin and there's no magnetic field. And so you have very little protection against those cosmic rays, even on the surface of Mars. And so on Mars, you would have to build some sort of underground habitat to use the soil as a shield against those cosmic rays.
0: And there are no materials on Earth that we've known that can provide that level of protection?
1: We do. So in theory, you can build a ship that has thick enough shields to protect against that radiation. But the difficulty is that that makes the ship much heavier and much more expensive. So basically, there's a trade-off as far as the expense of the mission and the degree of safety for the astronauts. So if you don't mind the astronauts developing cancer five years after they return, then it's much cheaper to send them to Mars. But if you want them to lead a full and healthy life, then that's going to require a much more shielding and a much more expensive mission.
0: Kevin, can you remind me what, again, is the name of this conundrum that we're talking about? How do we refer to this?
1: It's called cosmic rays. Got it. Cosmic rays consist of atoms, nuclei of atoms that are traveling through space at very high speeds. These are particles that are produced both by the sun and they're also produced by distant supernova explosions elsewhere in our galaxy.
0: What about the fuel question about going to Mars and back and being able to spend the fuel to escape the Earth's gravitational pull and still have enough fuel to get to Mars? Can you kind of walk through that debate and how some theories that people have to help solve that fuel question?
1: The fuel problem isn't a huge one because we already have rockets that can send unmanned probes to Mars. For instance, the Mars Curiosity, that was a a rover the size of a small car. And so it's not too much of a leap to entertain sending a somewhat larger spacecraft that can send humans. So that's not so much of a problem, although it would be more expensive than sending unmanned probes.
0: I vaguely remember reading something about to get the fuel to come back to Earth, the spacecraft would be so heavy on the way into Mars and the atmosphere is not thick enough that it would be difficult for it to slow down and you'd essentially crash even more than Rover did. I think that was like a beach ball, if I remember. Is that a problem or not? Just trying to basically slow down as you're coming up to Mars?
1: Yeah, so you definitely would want to have enough fuel aboard so that you could slow down enough by the time you arrived to be captured by the gravity of Mars and enter orbit. So that's definitely an important issue. One hope is that once you arrived on Mars, that you might be able to harvest enough water in the form of ice and then separate that water into rocket fuel that you could use maybe for your return journey.
0: Got it. I'm so glad other people are thinking about these uh, things because I couldn't even get us from zero to one. We're going to shift topics slightly because it's hard not to think about Mars, and it's hard not to mention Elon Musk. And, you know, he thinks we could get there as soon as 2024. And curious what your reaction to that target is.
1: I think it's great to be ambitious and targets of that kind, but I think it's probably not realistic. I think it's unlikely that we'll have humans on the way to Mars in only five years. It's kind of hard to believe. So for perspective, NASA in its current plan, it doesn't expect to send humans to Mars until about 10 years later than
0: that. Okay, so call it 2035, for example. Right. What's your sense on that target? Do you think that's a reasonable target, or is that even a stretch?
1: I think that's realistic. Uh, as long as NASA has sufficient funding for it, I think they could do that.
0: Is there a question about where the funding of NASA lies on this project? Is this something that every administration, you got to hear a little bit white-knuckled to get funding?
1: Well, currently, NASA is slowly developing the groundwork for sending humans to Mars, But they haven't actually received concrete funding from congress to actually start developing
0: such a mission that makes sense i sure hope that gets funded just for humanity to have something to shoot for i think that's important i'm curious what your high-level thoughts are about spacex
1: yeah it's very exciting and they've done a lot of great work in terms of their rockets and that they're now on the verge of using their rockets to send humans to the International space station I think it's great to have a private company like that working and cooperating with NASA.
0: When you think about leaders in the private space, uh, obviously S- SpaceX gets to talk a lot about maybe Blue Origin, for example. I mean, what are the companies that you feel are doing the best work related to that?
1: Well, actually, SpaceX is the main one that I'm familiar with. That's not an area that I follow closely. So mostly what I know is just what I read in the in the papers about SpaceX.
0: Okay. If you had a chance to ask Elon Musk any question related to space, what would you ask him?
1: I would ask him how he plans to protect his astronauts on their journey to Mars from these cosmic rays. What does he have in mind as far as protecting them from that?
0: Kim, we're going to wrap up with uh, rapid fire questions to conclude here. And so I'm just going to jump right in if you're ready. Sure. All right. Scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, how much do you love Star Trek? 10. And your favorite character? Data or Picard. And why is that? I'm not sure. It's hard to articulate a reason. Same question. Uh, scale of 1 to 10, how much do you love Star Wars? Seven. <laughs> can you stargaze for fun, given the fact that you observe stars for a living? I can. I like watching for
1: meteors during meteor showers. But I actually, I don't too often. And what would you do if
0: you weren't an astronomer?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I would probably be an engineer, I think. Or maybe like an archaeologist.
0: And what are you curious about right now? Whether there's life
1: elsewhere in the universe.
0: Any unusual habits that you have that you want to share with us?
1: No, I don't think so.
0: And final question, what are the three things that our listeners should remember about astronomy?
1: Well, astronomy provides a unique view of the universe and a unique view of Earth. So one is that the Earth is something of an oasis of life in the universe, and that I think that it provides additional perspective as far as protecting Earth and the life on the planet. As far as uh, two and three, I mean, there's so many things I would like people to know about astronomy.
0: The oasis, Earth as an oasis, is an amazing thought that has never crossed my mind. That's powerful.
1: Yeah, I mean, so we've explored all these amazing worlds and moons in our own solar system, And they're all unique in their own ways. But so far, there's only one that has life on it. And so it really drives home how special Earth is.
0: Well, maybe on that note, we will wrap it up. It truly was an honor, Kevin, to get a chance just to advance my IQ slightly today. And I appreciate very much taking the time and also your dedication to studying all that you do. It's most helpful. Thank you.
1: Sure, no problem. My pleasure. Thanks for the great questions.